This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and fpcgolfport on YouTube. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Gospel Luke, chapter 2. Now, the Christmas season is said to be one of the most calm and peaceful times of the year. It's kind of hard to even say that. You're already laughing. I got to the joke yet. It is the season to be jolly, right? And you may think, when we think about the peace of Christmas, about, you know, the family gathered around a roaring fire in their Christmas sweaters, you know, drinking hot chocolate, listening to Nat King Cole, just feasted on a ribeye steak dinner. Well, that's my part. Sorry. You get the picture. It's been peaceful, right? But in the reality, the holidays are often much less ideal, picture-perfect, peaceful. In fact, they can kind of be times of stress, of maxed-out credit cards and packed stores and family feuds. And I don't know if anything says Christmas is coming, quite like two grown men fighting in Best Buy over a half-price TV, right? But whatever your version of Christmas best fits your experience, and it's probably somewhere between. There's a lot of peace, there's a lot of good, but if we're being honest, there's some stress involved. This morning, we're going to look at the actual peace of Christmas, because in the coming of our Savior, there truly is peace that we have, even whether or not your experience of everything around the season is peaceful or not. And it's a piece that's much greater, much long-enduring than the Hallmark card Christmas. All right, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there was born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest." And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen them, they made wildly known the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning to a familiar text, but one that is familiar for a very good reason. Lord, it shows us in the birth of your Christ there is glory in heaven. And Lord, we thank you that you came even to lowly shepherds, even to sinners like us with your good gospel. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. This morning we find that at the birth of our Lord, his birth was first proclaimed to really an unlikely group. Shepherds. Shepherds. Verse 8 and 9, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock 
by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Now, why do you think that the angels came to shepherds? Why did they come to shepherds? And it's not because shepherds were these kind, innocent men who just loved being around animals all the time. Actually, some of that was the opposite. Right? We shouldn't romanticize the shepherds. In fact, in their society, the shepherds were often seen as really untrustworthy and unclean men. They were ceremonially unclean all the time. So they were really outcasts of society. But it's interesting that to these outcasts that really don't seem like they mean much, God in His wisdom decided to first proclaim the gospel, to first proclaim Christ's coming. And that actually does, as we continue to understand Scripture and what is revealed, fits and makes sense. These are the ones that Jesus came to save. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 through 29, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That was certainly true of these shepherds. It's certainly true of us as well. Which means we should never fall into that trap of thinking which is common to us. We should never get in that cap of thinking, I've gone too far for the grace of God. I've gone too far for God to save me. We shouldn't wonder, well, how could God love someone like me? How could anyone love me? Maybe He's just going to reject me like others have rejected me. And the answer of Scripture is no. God's love for you in Christ Jesus is far deeper. It's far wider than we can understand and comprehend. And we start to see aspects of that, that He would come to lowly shepherds. There's no excuses for coming to this Savior. Right? It's not, all right, I will come to Jesus once I've cleaned up my life enough, then I can come to Jesus. Or, okay, once I've finally repented enough, now I can come to Jesus. No, the gospel calls us to come to Him. And there are no qualifications because it's only in Christ that you're going to be able to make progress towards holiness. We can't get that backwards. But sometimes in our mind we think, okay, once I'm good enough, but God came to shepherds in their muck. So these shepherds, they're watching their sheep when all of a sudden an angel of the Lord appeared. And the text indicates, it says, they were terrified. They feared a great fear. You ever been afraid? You ever been truly afraid? I hesitate to say this, but I'm a pretty jumpy person. My lovely wife seemingly every day hides behind a corner and I'm coming out, you know, I'm just trying to go make a sandwich. Jumps out, scares me. Does it work? Yes. Every time. I've never not jumped. Every time. So that's a little bit, a little fear that I have. But, you know, there are other things. You know, if you've ever been in a car wreck, you kind of have an experience of kind of an instant sense of fear. Even if it's something very minor. You know, afterwards your nerves are shot and you're just kind of like on edge for the rest of the day. I know that's happened to me even when I just bumped a fender or something. Not that I do that. I've never been in a car wreck, right? No, no. Anyway, it was in New Orleans. It was okay. So... It's in those moments, right, things like that, that we realize, all right, maybe we're all a little bit more vulnerable than we thought, that something so small and insignificant can kind of throw us off a little bit. On the day that I was converted, I was certainly afraid. I had made a series of 
bad choices that led me in a situation that was dangerous and, quite frankly, demonic. And I was afraid. I was afraid for my life. I was afraid for my soul. But even that experience really pales in comparison to what these shepherds were experiencing, the fear that they had. Why were they afraid? That's the way that we often see with angelic and heavenly encounters. It's really difficult for us to picture this scene because sometimes when we do our you know, nativity plays and things, we're like, oh, we have these cute little angels, which, I mean, is good and wonderful, but they were terrifying because the glory of the Lord shone around them and they trembled before the angel. This was a manifestation of God's presence, we might say. The kind of glory that when Isaiah encountered it, he said, woe is me, I'm going to die. So there is fear here, and it's not wrong for them to be afraid. And of course, this is only one angel. We don't exactly know what they felt when the rest of the thousands showed up. You can only imagine. Well, let's look at the message that the angel says, starting at verse 10. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. The angel first you know, assures them, okay, I'm not here to harm you. Right? And we, we often see that with angels. If you look at all the different nativity stories and others, right, when the angels come to people, they don't be afraid because they know they're terrifying. Right? But he says he comes to bring good tidings of great joy. Or your translation might say good news of great joy. But that's really the same word that we get gospel. Right? So they're coming to bring a, a gospel of great joy. So in a way, this angel is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the shepherds, this first pronouncement of the gospel. Now the angel is very careful to say that this gospel is for all the people. This is not a message just for these shepherds. It's in this context, it's a good news for all of Israel, is the original context there. But ultimately we know that it is a gospel for all the world. Right In Christ Jesus, the dividing wall has been broken down. Right, The ancient word that was spoken to Abraham, has been fulfilled through his seed, which is Jesus, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Simeon says he'll be a light for the Gentiles. So all this is coming to completion. God's gospel has always been a global gospel. We saw this very clearly last week in our study of the Great Commission. Look in your Bible to verse 11. It tells us four important truths about Jesus I want to highlight. First is the location of of his birth, the city of David. City of David. Why Bethlehem, that would be. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? Well, over a thousand years before, there was another shepherd born in Bethlehem, wasn't there? And while he seemed like the most unlikely choice, even among his brothers, this was a man after God's own heart, and he was anointed king. In 2 Samuel 7, God established a covenant with King David, that he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, when Jesus was born here, which son of David was sitting on the throne? There wasn't one. There wasn't one. And it might make you think, okay, has God forgotten his promise? Has he gotten forgotten the covenant that he made to David? He said he establish it forever. 
But no, it hadn't failed. God's promise had not failed. And it was going to be fulfilled through this Son, through this Christ. And of course, His kingdom will have no end. World without end. We also see that three titles are given to Jesus in this same verse. First, He is a Savior. He's a Savior. And this title is often given to rulers or kings, and it's that idea of being a deliverer. And these days, Caesar Augustus, who's mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, right? He's the emperor of Rome and saw himself as the savior of his people. But only Jesus is able to save, right? Because only his salvation was without end. Second, he is the Christ, right? He is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the long-expected son of David. He and his reign will not end. This goes back to him being born in the city of David. And finally, he is called the Lord which that one might throw him off a little bit. He's called the Lord. Of course, we know this to be true. He's Emmanuel, which means God with us. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in Christ Jesus, God took on flesh. So this child... He's got some great titles, but none greater than this, right? He's not just another baby. He's not just another son of David who will rule for a while and then die. He is the God-man, Christ Jesus. We're in our Christology class. You've heard a lot about who Jesus was the past few weeks. One of the things we talked about is why is it so important? Why does Jesus have to be truly God and truly man? And if we're to break it down, we'd say only God is perfect, and morally capable of fulfilling all of the law's commands. Only God can be perfect. But see, only man can live under the law and suffer death. So God's perfect, but God cannot die. So Jesus, as truly God and truly man, is the only sufficient Savior. So that's what we're thinking about when we think about Christmas, when we think about the Incarnation. It's God taking flesh so that He can live, but ultimately so He can die for our sins. Because He's the only one who could do it. This also means, of course, that we're not alone. We have a Savior. We have a God. We have a Savior who loves us, who identifies with us, and is even with us, even now. Of course, all this is is quite incredible, but if you look at the wording with me a little bit, I, I think it gets even more interesting. Verse 11, let's read it one more time. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, A Savior who is Christ the Lord, born to you. That's kind of odd phrasing. That's not really the way, that's not the way you think they would address about a child to shepherds who really don't know much about this child. How was he born to them? You know, a normal birth announcement would say, you know, baby, you know, baby Riley born to John, born to John and Sally Smith or something like that, born to the parents, but not Jesus. Not only born to Mary and even Joseph, but born to you, the shepherds. And believer, you too are the shepherd, right? Jesus was born to you, unto us, the scripture says. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. So if you believe, if you're trusting in this Savior, 
He is for you. He was born for you. He died for you. He is risen for you. The shepherds are then given a sign by God to confirm this message. And maybe, we don't know why he gave this. God's gracious in doing things like that. But maybe they would have questioned it all. You know, maybe they thought, okay, did that even really happen? Was this even real? You know, we are so quick to forget what God does in our lives. So he gives them a sign to confirm it. In the Reformed faith, when we typically think of, of signs, we think about the signs of his covenant promises, like the waters of baptism, right? And the sign of baptism is that just as surely as water cleanses our bodies from dirt, so does Jesus cleanse us of our sins. And so that's, this would be a, it's a good time to think about the sign that God has given us to remember our baptism, just as the Price children can, but just as all of us can. If you, even if you were an infant when you were baptized, and you can't visually remember it, that's not the point. Remember the promise, right? The promise is true. Believe in the God who's placed his sign and his seal upon you. So we see those signs that picture these realities. But here's something different. Here we have a sign of Christ's birth to the shepherds. The idea of a sign of a birth, isn't really all that uncommon. I mean, when a baby's born, it's a big deal. Whatever baby, but it's it's incredible when a child is born. And it's pretty normal if you walk down through a hospital, you'll see on all the doors there'll be signs. And they'll have the baby's name, the birth date, the weight, things like that. We could also say a sign of a birth is like those first pictures on Facebook, if you do that kind of thing. You know, the baby will be like all swaddled up like a burrito with little fingers poking out and all that. I like that, but anyway. Anyway, even if you don't send them to Facebook, you can send them to me. I'd like to see them. But the sign for the shepherds was that they would find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, we know the story. It doesn't really shock us. But that had to shock them, right? Think about all that they've been told, right? This wonderful Savior, this birth of this King, this Lord... He's been born. He's in a manger. Wait, what? We would expect the king to be in the nursery in a palace, right? With a crib made of the finest wood and gold with, you know, the royal guard outside, something like that. But he's in a feeding trough in Bethlehem? That had to shock them. It doesn't seem right. And of course, what complicates it even more is it's not just this great king It is this God in the flesh, this glorious, magnificent God whose praises are about to be proclaimed by the armies of heaven. The God whose glory would bring you to your knees in fear and adoration. Just a glimpse of His glory. And He's a baby lying in a manger. We have to say that our Lord most certainly humbled Himself, didn't He? He came down from heaven to the poorest of estates. He lived... And he died on a cross on Calvary. And that birth and that death, he died for us. Philippians 2.8 says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So all of that is there in that verse. But our Lord left his heavenly home. He lived in poverty. He was often homeless. He suffered. He died. And he rose again so that he might bring his brothers and sisters home to glory, reminds me of his promise that he made to his disciples. John 14, 
Verse 1 through 3, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus leaves his home so that he might bring all us redeemed sinners home. It's really a beautiful picture. It's also kind of interesting that Jesus leaves this world in a very similar manner in which he came into the world. Luke hints at that in his gospel, if you, if you look on both ends. When Jesus was born, he's wrapped in swaddling cloths, and he's laid in a borrowed manger. And when he died, he was wrapped in a linen shroud and laid in a borrowed tomb. Luke 23, 52 through 53. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. I think he's trying to make that connection for us. But all of Jesus' life, right, from his birth all the way to his death and resurrection was an obedient, we might say, self-condescension, coming down, humbling of the Son for his people. And what's amazing is that he did it for lowly shepherds. That he did it for sinners like you and for sinners like me. And when we come to that truth, we have to say, what a wonderful Savior we have. That's why the song, what a friend we have in Jesus. Who else has done anything like this? Now, in response to this message, we have this really glorious scene. One of, one of those glorious in all Scripture. Verse 13 through 14. And suddenly there was an angel with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. We don't see that many instances of angels in the Bible, but when we do, it's usually only one, maybe two, right? But here they burst forth in a multitude and praise and glorify God. Why? This is a pretty special moment. This is a pretty big deal, right? A birth like this has never happened, will never happen again. And so the angels of heaven, thousands of angels likely, maybe more, fill the sky singing praise to our God. Look at what the angels say. They say, glory to God in the highest. Now in Latin, that reads gloria in excelsis Deo. We're going to sing that in a little while, just so you know. But when we think about that, glory to God in the highest. What more fitting thing for the angels to sing, to respond to the coming of the king, than glory to God. It glorifies him. So we are to praise him and we follow their example. We praise him even in the busyness of the Christmas season or whatever we want to call it, right? We don't forget what our Savior has done for us, right? It's right for us to respond in praise and as believers, not only this time, but all of our life should be filled with praise. That's why we're here, to glorify and enjoy God. And the angels are giving us that example. They also say, and on earth, peace... Goodwill toward men, or your translation might say, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This again is a a remarkable sight. There's some contrast going on. You have the host, the army of heaven there, before the shepherds, bursting out in their glory, right? If they were to attack any earthly army, it'd be over, poof, done. And what do they proclaim? Peace. This is the army calling and pronouncing peace. Because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to bring peace. 
Now, many in that day were looking for peace. Of course, what some really wanted was just to be released from Rome. They thought that would be peace. Others, like Caesar Augustus, again, he thought, okay, I've brought peace. I brought a certain amount of peace and security to my empire. It's called the Pax Romana is what that's known as. And we like the idea of peace. We like the idea of, you know, peace in the family, world peace, right? Peace between political parties. Even again, that peaceful feeling on Christmas evening or Christmas Eve. But the peace Jesus provides is so much greater than all of that. Because what does he bring? He brings peace with God. Peace with God. Now when you hear that, you might say, well, I didn't know that I was at war with God. But I think Scripture is very clear. Ephesians 2, 1-3, through And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And when we start to understand what the Bible talks and says about sin, we see that sin is an affront to God's rule and reign. God is the creator of the universe, says, you're my creation, live this way. And we say, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I know what's best. R.C. Sproul said it this way, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude to the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. We curse the one who even puts the breath in our lungs to say those words. God has every right to wipe us out. But instead, what does He do? He gives us His own Son. So that all who trust in Jesus would have peace with this God. And God is at peace with those whom His favor rests. We desperately need this peace, even if we don't at first realize it. We desperately need this peace. John Calvin says this, Until men have peace with God and are reconciled to Him through the grace of Christ, all the joy that they experience is deceitful and of short duration. And so we find in Jesus, Jesus brings a peace that passes all understanding. It brings a joy that will never cease. And so many people are longing and looking for this peace and this joy And they'll never find it apart from Christ Jesus. But it's there. It's available. It's available to all who come and would receive it. Our final verses, look at verse 15 through 20. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen them, they made widely known this saying, which was told to them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen, they had heard and seen, as it was told to them. So what do the shepherds do? They, first, they respond with faith. They went to go see this Savior lying in a manger. I mean, that seems like a normal response. But you have to think, if Jesus was born in a palace, they're probably not going. 
Right? Thank you, angels. I'm glad that He's there, but I'm never going to get past the guards. But that's not how our Savior is. Jesus is available. Jesus is there to anyone who wanted to come. He didn't turn them away. He doesn't turn anyone away. We also see they made haste. They made haste to go to see the child. They didn't let this opportunity pass, but they responded in faith. And that's really the way that we ought to respond to God's Word. We aren't to let it pass away. Right? When Jesus talks about the parable of the soils, and there's the seed that falls on the rocky path on the ground, it doesn't take any root in it, and the birds of the air swoop up and take it. Instead, we respond today. We don't just leave it and push it off. At some point, I'll believe it. At some point, I'll trust that Savior. I responded then. We respond today. 2 Corinthians 6 2, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. They also shared this message with some success, right? They didn't hide this news. They, they shared it. And of course, that, that again, for us, have we, we know lots of great things about Jesus. Everyone here knows lots of wonderful things about Jesus. Share those with others. And as the people heard the words of the shepherds, they marveled, right? They had never heard anything like this. And so we could even say that these shepherds, these lowly shepherds, Unclean, not thought of, people don't like you shepherds are some of the first evangelists in the new covenant. Now look at Mary's response, verse 19. But Mary, she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. What Mary did, she meditated on it. She was continuing to grow. She was continuing to learn. She was continuing to wrestle with all of this. Of course, that would do us well to follow her example as well. To meditate on the beauty of the Incarnation, right? It's one thing to hear about it, to read about it, but there's another thing to think about it and to meditate on it and to recognize how it impacts our lives day by day. To consider the price that Jesus paid for you. To consider His great love for you. Not just His love for you 2,000 years ago, which is true, but His love for you even now. Have you meditated on God's love for you and God's Word? Well, finally, the shepherds returned and they glorified and they praised God. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of people thought they were crazy. You saw what in the sky? You know, they didn't care. And they rightfully responded with praise. And that's, again, how we ought to respond as well. So four applications for this Christmas season that we see in this text, right? Respond to the gospel. Believe. Don't push it off. Share the gospel Meditate on the gospel, and of course, praise God for the gospel. Glory to God in the highest. Amen. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 10 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.